Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey, I think you're going to like this interview with Julie Cole, the co-founder of Mabel's Labels. She started the business about 13 years ago, and if you've ever put one of those stickers of your kid's name on a sippy cup, you probably know about Mabel's Labels. Tremendous success story. Built it up over a 13-year period. Ultimately sold it for $12 million to Avery. And... Uh, you know, a real success story. There's one part of the interview, though, that we kind of glossed over, and I wanted to make a special attempt here to highlight for you as you listen to the interview, the negotiation that Julie had with her three other partners around the ultimate sale price. And she talks a little bit about the fact that, you know, there was some back and forth around whether that was the right price or they could all agree on that price. And it reminds me that if all else fails, it's ideal to go into business with other partners who are in a similar financial position to you. If you are a lot richer or indeed a lot poorer than your partner, when you get an acquisition offer, it can look very differently through your lenses. Because obviously, if you've got lots of money, you may hold out for you know a higher price for your business. Likewise, if your partner has much, much less money, you know, put a few zeros on a check and that can make a huge impact to their lifestyle. And so it can be a, a, a major cause of problems in a relationship and particularly around the sale of a company if in your personal lives you have very different financial positions. Now, in the case of Julie and her partners, they worked it out fine and ultimately the story ends in a success. But I just wanted you to know that when all else fails, if you can find partners that have a similar financial position, I think you'll end up living to be thankful for that down the road. Julie Cole, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. So I was going to ask you, tell me all about Mabel's Labels, but I know all about Mabel's Labels because my wife is like your biggest customer. Yay. <laughs> uh, but for folks who don't know what Mabel's Labels are, tell us what you guys do. Look, I'm always happy to talk about Mabel's Labels. So um, what we are is we're the leading provider of children's labels in North America. And what does that mean? Uh, basically, we created 13 years ago, I started this company with three other women. And um, we created, first of all, our original label, which is Dishwasher Microwave Safe. So this was a name label. So you've got your child's name on there. Um, uh, parents go online and they can you know, pick a, a cute little picture icon to go along and, and colors. And it would go on their bottles and their sippy cups and all their things that go to daycare and school and camp and, and, and come and you want returned home. So we started with that. And now we've created a line of over the years, we've you know just kept introducing more and more uh, labeling products. So we've got our iron-ons, we've got our peel and stick clothing labels that don't require ironing or sewing. We've got shoe labels, we've got allergy alerts, you, you just name it. If you go to our website and check them all out, mabelslabels.com. Um, so yeah, we started this and we started it basically because we were young parents at the time and we noticed a product missing from the market. So we saw parents, you know, writing their children's names with a magic marker or a permanent marker or using masking tape on bottles to write their child's name. And we just thought, gosh, I think we can do a little bit better than that. So um, we got down to work and started researching different materials and uh, products, and Mabel's Labels was born. And, and, and it's just exploded since. How did you guys uh, figure out the shareholders agreement between you, the other Julie, Cynthia, and Trisha? Did you guys just go 25% up the middle, or did you have some sort of formula you figured out? Right. We went 25%. 
percent up the middle. And um, you know, I think one of the the smart things we did in those early days was before we got too far into this little venture, we um, we got a shareholders agreement together. And I, I think that's a very important thing to do because I often say, if you think marital divorce is messy, you should try business partner divorce. Did you go through one of the a divorce? Did did one of the no, three four co? We didn't. No. We managed. We've done ex- we've done extremely well. The four of us stuck together, and only recently on uh, last Friday was the last day for one of the partners. Um, she's moving on to other things, and the three of us are going to stick around for for a little while yet. Wow, that has to be you know one of the true success stories among partnerships to have four partners last all that time. What was your secret for working through? Big, heavy issues where you butted heads. Yeah, look, four partners is a lot, I'm going to say. like That's a lot of people, business, you know, uh, people would not recommend a partnership of four. But we went into it knowing each other really well. Um, one of my partners is my sister. And the other two are actually friends of ours that we met at university who then later married um, our brother, and we have a young. You uncle. have you have broken every rule in the book. Like, I, right? <laughs> never go into business with a family member. Honestly. Never go into business with a friend. <laughs> oh, we've done it all, and four of us. Like really, I know, crazy. Um, but having said that, we, we did go into it knowing each other really well, um, and. I think in those early days, the nice thing about it was uh, that we were able to really divide up the labor. So I wasn't doing everything, you know, no one person was doing the whole lot. So we can divide up, you know, somebody was writing press releases, somebody was actually making the labels, somebody was going to the bank and figuring stuff. So we were able to do that. And I think that really contributed to our early growth. Of course, um, a couple of things we had to manage in the early days was that we weren't sort of micromanaging each other, that there wasn't any resentment around is somebody working more hours than somebody else. So all those things can creep in. Uh, I think it's really important that you just always keep those lines of communication open. And for sure, we messed up loads of times and we learned. And every time we just reminded ourselves that, you know what, communication is a skill that's learned. Everybody communicates differently and we're still practicing. We're always practicing and we'll do better the next time. And we, because of the family thing, we had to be very careful too. You know, when we were in the, that boardroom and some conversations get pretty, pretty feisty, we had to be sure not to, um, you know, take those things personally. And, uh, you know, we had to be able to walk out of the boardroom and, and say, uh, you know, who's bringing the mashed potatoes to Thanksgiving dinner and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, we had to, we had to really, we really had to watch ourselves and keep, keep each other in check. Walk us through the growth of the business, because you got this company up to a fairly good size. What were the big kind of milestones for you as you think about, you know, the growth that, that you achieved? Right. So, um, I think from the very get go, we had a very good sense that this this had some legs. And I think it's because, first of all, we were bringing a, m- a product to market that wasn't there. And I think that, that it was very important that, um, you know, we had to educate the market. First of all, that was our first challenge, but it wasn't hard. We had to educate the market that they needed this product. So um, that was, you know, we went to tons of baby shows. We tried to really get in the hands of parents, you know. And uh once parents saw the product out there, it just made so much sense. So a mother, say, labeled her kid's stuff, sent the kid off to daycare, all the other parents see it and think, oh, gosh, I really need that. Where did you get that? So, you know, the word of mouth starts. We had a couple of nice early press hits. 
uh, and Canadian Living. We um, and, and that really that really helped to spread the word because it was also you know when you get a press hit when you're a young company you can't afford to pay for you know a lot of um, a lot of advertisements and that sort of thing, right? Like we're on, we're, we're, things are pretty tight. Speaking speak of costs, how are you making the labels? So did you have a manufacturing or were you outsourcing that? What was, what was No, that? we were making them ourselves. Like we leased the equipment. We leased some equipment that is used for an entirely different purpose, material that's used for an entirely different purpose and figured out that this could, this would create the labels that were, that were durable and could do what we needed it to do. So we, um, yeah, I mean, I remember our, the guy we leased from the company and the, you know, all, they were just like, I got these four girls in the hammer making labels with this stuff. We're like, stop telling people <laughs> that's our, that's our secret sauce. What was the original purpose of the equipment? Oh, well, I tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Right? Oh, it's still a secret. It's like asking. Absolutely. The, oh, yeah, classified information. Oh, I, I had no idea. So you've got you some go. proprietary technology. I mean, in, joking aside, how how much a part of the acquisition by CCL was the fact that you had this proprietary technology? You know what? I'm going to say not a whole lot. I think what um, CCL Avery loved about Mabel's Labels, I know what they loved about Mabel's Labels, was the brand we created and the community behind it. So Mabel's Labels is just a brand building has been so important to us. We are, we fiercely protect our girl Mabel and, you know, everything from how our, our colors are, how our icons are, how we speak to our community. All of that is done in such a meaningful way. And the way we've created this community of moms, we've got brand ambassadors who are so loyal and out there talking. I mean, you talk about your wife, right? You, you hear the passion when our customers talk about our product. And I think a lot of it, a lot of it is a, the product does do what it says it's going to do. And B, we've just created such an incredible community. We have an online community. I personally have been blogging for 10 years and I blog the reason I blog is not to talk about labels. I blog so that our customers feel connected to our brand and they think, oh, look, the people who run that company, they're just like me. Their mom's just like me. We're all in the same position. We're all trying to get through the day. We're all working hard. And that's very important to the mom market that they feel a personal tie and a personal connection to their brand. So I blog about things like running a business and running a busy household. I have... um. I'm not sure if you're aware, but I have six children. So, you know, it's a, a very busy life and people are quite interested in how I organize around that while running a business and, and blogging and I do a lot of TV stuff. So, you know, just really staying connected and um, and also social media. You know, we've got 150,000 Facebook fans. For a small company, like that is, that's a tremendous success to, to, to have created a, an online community that feels so connected to us because we know that when moms feel connected to a brand, they buy from that brand. So not only is it good for business, it's also a lot of fun. So talk us through the acquisition. You had, you had built this company up at the time of the acquisition by CCL. You had, I think, around $12 million in revenue. Yes, roughly. So we um, that's right. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. So it was, it was um, the sale price was twelve million. My, my mistake. The sale price was yeah, twelve million. Yeah, the sale million. price was twelve million Canadian. Yeah. Yes, and we um, so uh, uh, yeah, I'll tell you how it happened. It was it was interesting because we actually weren't planning to sell. 
Um, we, although strangely, we're at a point where we thought we had to do something, whether it was hiring an external CEO, because we thought, uh, maybe the four of us kind of running it together is, is kind of time to move away from that just structurally. Um, or maybe it was time to invest some more money, find some, find some money somewhere. So we needed to do something. We weren't sure what out of the blue, we get a, um, we get a call from the folks at Avery. And this was in the summer, maybe July or August. And they said, look, we'd love to take you out for dinner and just talk to you. And, and, and by no the way, C- CCL Industries is the holding company. Avery is the operating company. Is that correct? So so CCL owns a whole bunch of companies. One of the companies they own is Avery, um, which is based out of California. So because Avery is Avery Labels, it makes sense that we report through Avery and then Avery, of course, reports to CCL. Got it. So Avery says, let's go for dinner. Exactly. So we go to uh, dinner. Um, They don't say anything that makes us think the conversation has come to a complete halt. So we keep talking. And um, Have they raised the issue of, of acquiring you at this point? Yes. First off, straight up. They're like, you know what? We want to go out for dinner with you because we love what you do. We love your company. We want it. Like they just, you know, that's what they do. Right. Um, so really, I mean, there are a few key probably core values that we needed to have aligned in order for this to go, to go ahead. Um, cause we've had other offers. What we really wanted was we didn't want our company to be taken over and become Avery. We wanted it to still be Mabel's labels. And it is, it's really a, an attach on to Avery. They don't, they don't want to take over a company like Mabel's labels to turn it into Avery. They, what they love is the brand and what we've created. So they want to contribute to that and grow that. Why was that so important to you personally? I mean, once you sell it, isn't it, I mean, what, what, who cares what they call it? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever started a company. It's like your baby, right? Like you you birth this thing, you rear this thing, and you want to make sure it gets sent off into the world the way you wanted wanted to. Um so yeah, that was important. And, and I think another big piece to that, John, really, is that we wanted our we wanted our employees, want our staff to stay employed. We wanted uh, our company to stay in Hamilton. And where other companies, when they sh- showed interest, none of these things were going to happen. But with um, CCL Avery, all of these things were going to happen. So we are still, I'm sit- still sitting in my office in Hamilton, my Mabel's Labels office. We're still making our labels here in the production facility. It is virtually business as usual. Um, and of course, the next key piece was we weren't going to give this company away. We worked hard and the price had to be right. And so talk about that a little bit. You you have this dinner, you feel like you're aligned on some of the core issues, the name, the employees, yeah. the, you know, the staying in Hamilton, Ontario. What was the next step? Did they come to you with an offer? Did you say, here's what we need for, you know, to, to make a deal get done? Like, did they make the first move? Um, I suppose they really did. Um, and see, for us, we had, we went back to them because um, we, because we weren't planning to sell, if you're planning to sell your business, you do things differently than you do in a growth year. So we were doing growth year. We had just invested a whole lot of money in our website. We had just revamped our fundraising program. So it wasn't a year where EBITDA was fantastic, right? So, um, if you're wanting to sell, you want to make sure that your EBITDA is fantastic because basically the formula for the price is EBITDA times whatever, 
whether it's times four, times five, times six, but your buyer is going to come and say, well, look, okay, this is your EBITDA. Let's times that by whatever. Our EBITDA wasn't great because we weren't positioned to sell this year. We were in a growth year. We are going to reap the benefits two years down the road for all the work we were doing this year. So when they came with the offer, we were like, okay, look, we just need you to take into account. You came to us, you know, we weren't, um, we weren't in a position to sell this year. So we, um, you know, we did a presentation to them. They absolutely understood our brand value. They understood the investment we made and we were able to get to a number that everyone was, was happy with. So, and Julie, to be clear, the, the offer they made to you, was it a, was it a, a number or was it a multiple of EBITDA? Did they say, look, Julie, we'll pay whatever, four times EBITDA or did it they say was, we're going to pay now, X let me dollars? Recall, I believe it was a, it was a multiple. And then, um, as in the press release, it was an adjusted based on some of the information they got about, you know, our potential for growth, our brand value and our investments. So they did those adjustments, uh, to reflect the, the one-time sort of extraordinary nature of some of those expenses you'd invested in the exactly, website. And exactly. It, but I would say to your listeners who are thinking about selling just to very much keep that in mind, because you want to make that, sure that number is, is going to equal you know, what you want to sell your company for. So if you're planning on selling next year, it's not an investment year. It's a growth. It's a, you know, um, you got to make money. And guys, Julie's making a huge point here. So take note, it, the process is called normalization, where you are presenting your profit and loss statement, at normalizing it for any extraordinary expenses, either good or bad, frankly. So you're right. going to take out any of those really one-time expenses that you can make the case to the buyer that, hey, this is a one-off, that we, we made this investment to grow, but we don't have to make it again next year. And, and that's going to fatten up your EBITDA line. And that's, that's obviously a, a point of negotiation that you're going to have with, uh, with the acquirer, but it's the normalization process. And, 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 and it's an important part. Did you, Julie, work with an M&A professional in helping you sell this company or were you representing yourself? How did that work? Oh, no, we sure did. And that would be my first piece of advice. Do not negotiate this yourself. Um, especially in a situation like ours, because we were staying on and you don't really want your relationship to go from, you know, doing hard negotiations to you reporting to them. That can be a very awkward transition. So yeah, we, we had somebody come in who is, who is fantastic. And, um, you know, and, and then you can you know, do the good cop, bad cop thing a little bit too. Right. So it's, uh, it's very important. You want to, we want to make sure we had a great relationship with Avery because they were amazing people. And I'm so glad that they're, the company that, you know, we've, we've left Mabel's labels in their hands because they're just such a good culture fit. And I just think it was very important for our relationship that we are in a bit of an arm's length for the negotiations. I got to push a little bit on the decision to sell and maybe, maybe we can get underneath a little bit of, of, of what was driving that because on the, on the surface, you just made these investments that you were in your own words, they were going to bear fruit down the road. Right. Uh, you wanted the company to stay in, in Hamilton, keep the employees, keep the brand. You had a profitable growing business. You know, why sell? If, if none of that's going to change, why wouldn't right. you want to stay a hundred percent shareholder of this thing? Well, I think there were a few things. Again, it was the four of us. I mean, we've been running the company sort of as a, a four headed horse and that was, that was starting to, you know, we, that was starting to, to wear us down a bit. We were getting tired of that. So we knew we needed to do a structure change. We weren't sure entirely what we wanted to do. We thought we need to do, we needed to make some change. And I think a couple, you know, a couple of us were like, ah, you know what, we've been at this 13 years. It's been a great ride, but 
maybe it's time to try out something new. And, you know, I have some other business ideas or interests or, you know, maybe I want to be able to have some time to focus on my kids a little bit more. So I think there were a lot of factors. There are four of us. So I think we each had our own little reasons for thinking, you know what, maybe this is the time, maybe the stars of a line and this call came just at the right time. Did your M&A professional find other bidders to to come alongside Avery to uh, to try to gin up the price a bit? No, we didn't do that. We made a, a conscious decision not to do that. Tell me why. What was your thinking there? We didn't, look, we, we knew what number we wanted. We knew we just didn't want to turn this into a three ring circus. We had, we had other people give us offers and they even said, please come back if you, you know, if you get another offer. And at the end of the day, we didn't because these other companies weren't going to give us what we wanted because they had very, they were very strict about their EBITDA times five. And there were, they had already made it clear that there was no flexibility around that. They were very clear about the relocation. So it just seemed like why, when we found a company that, we're very comfortable with, we're getting along really well with, we just, we just didn't feel, we just didn't feel like it, honestly. And I can see why people do. It makes a lot of sense. But for us, it just wasn't the right move. What was the most uh, troubling part of the negotiation between you, Julie, Cynthia, and Tricia, as it relates to the actual mechanics of the negotiation did 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 you were you all aligned throughout the process i'm imagining there were one or two issues that were like are, are we really going to agree to that or this right. and what were the most kind of the Probably, deal points the toughest? yeah look i think um i i would say that we did pretty well through the process probably um the hardest point to get to was that what that bottom number would be, what we could all agree to. Some people, you know, would have said, well, I'll go for this. And others would be like, well, I can't do that. I need to go for this. Because keep in mind, you know, we sell this, but we divide it by four, right? So it's not like any one of us was going home with $12 million. So, uh, you know, I think that, um, and depending on people's, you know, personal financial situations and maybe their spouse's jobs, like everybody sort of had a different um, bottom dollar. But we, you know, we, we did get to a place of, of agreement on that. It really just took a little while and took some conversation and communication and, and we got there. I mean, one of maybe one of the things that was a little bit tricky was that Avery wanted one of us to be the GM. So then we had to decide which one um, would be the GM. And, you know, that could have been, that could have gotten pretty crazy if everybody wanted the, the top job around here. But we actually got to that relatively easy as easily as well. So I'm going to say we, we, we did well. I'm, it was stressful. I'm going to say through, um, and anyone who's gone through this process, due diligence can be, uh, a bit of a pain, right? Um, we hear that all the time. What, what was the most frustrating part of diligence for you? You know what? We, we had a fairly good, again, we had a fairly, this went smooth. Like if you think about the call came in August, we wrapped this up in December. Like, we had a pretty smooth process. Our housekeeping was in order. Um, I mean, really what due diligence, due diligence means is that they're just going to come in and they're going to, you know, turn over every rock. They want to see every contract. They want to, um, you know, every bit of paperwork. So because our housekeeping was in order, we just spent a lot of time uploading it to a site so their accountants could go through it. Um, and then, you know, their accountants came in and spent a couple of days uh, so it can be a pretty heavy and daunting process if uh, if your you know if your paperwork is not in order. So if anyone is thinking about going, 
you know, down this, down this road. We talked just, about another book show radio episode, this idea of pre-diligence and getting ready to go through the diligence process. So if I'm, if I'm doing the math yes, here, right. you sold the business for $12 million, uh, your adjusted EBITDA, according to the press release Avery put out, was $2.8 million. Uh, so, so that was adjusted after the expressing it for taking out some of the one-time expenses. Is that right? So it, it looks like it was a little more than four times Correct. adjusted EBITDA, something like that. And and so these other offers you had from the guys right. who weren't going to leave it in Hamilton, who you know, couldn't guarantee they were going to keep the name, they were they were offering kind of five times, but but not on an adjusted basis. They were basically. Right, right. Now I can't remember now. This was like last year that a couple came through. Um, but yeah, I just, I just, I can say that we we weren't ever probably going to get to the number, and uh, yeah, it just yeah. wasn't a great culture fit either. So made it easy. Wait around for the right one. And the thing is, too, you can never be too confident because you know what you don't you you do not know this is going through until that money is in your bank, like. People get left at the altar all the time. Such a good point. Which brings me to how you told your employees. I mean, at what point did you tell? What What I imagine. I mean, first of all, you 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 have employees who are are family members. Your partners are family members. I'm imagining the vibe among your employees. Small town Ontario was pretty tight. Look, it was um, it was it was really tough. One of the hardest things about this was because CCL is publicly listed. We couldn't talk to anyone about this, or it would be insider trading. So we um, we had to be like not telling our staff anything that was going on, and like when you know when they're doing due diligence, pretending it was somebody from the government doing an audit. Like it just felt so dishonest, and our culture is just not that way at all. Um, our our staff is so involved in everything we do, so that felt really really uncomfortable. Um, I mean, I know why we had to do it, but it doesn't help. Uh, so when we did tell them, we, uh, CCL was doing the press release on January 4th, we called a mandatory staff meeting that Monday at 8.30. And that's when we, um, and that's when we told them, and we had actually put scripts together, put together, um, uh, you know, guiding principles about, you know, over communicating how we're going to get through this together. And, you know, when time of change is a time where we need to stick to Together instead of turn on each other. So we kind of put all this together and we had a coach uh, coach us beforehand. We help us come up with the scripts, help us with the, the messaging so that it would be taken in a way that, you know, we, we wanted it to be taken for them to, to best understand how this was going to go. And also we just didn't want people freaking out because it was not going to be a big deal. It was, there was not going to be a whole lot of change. Certainly finance and HR with all the policies and that sort of thing, there's a change, but, um, you know, moving over to their new systems, financial systems, whatever that Avery uses. But, you know, for the most part, the same people making the labels are before January 4th are still out there making the labels right now. So we just wanted to make sure that it was communicated in the most, possibly the most effective way we could. Well, what was the toughest part or the or the most negative reaction you got from employees? Um, look, we we didn't. We had prepared. We thought, you know, maybe there'll be some negative feedback about, you know, us getting money. Maybe there'd be some negative feedback about, you know, us not telling them what was going on. 
everybody, you know, it, it finished, the meeting finished with one of the, um, one of our directors standing up and just saying, you know what, you four, huge congratulations for what you've done. Let's give them a round of applause. And we just were like, oh, wow, what grownups, like how amazing. That's got to feel good. So, oh, so the deal yeah. closes, are, are you required to stay on as an employee uh, for a period of time, like in an earn out sort of fashion, or did you agree to do that? Oh, how did that work? On an earn out, so uh, it's sold. It's not mine at all. It's my money's off the table. But we three of us, um, one wanted to move on to other things, so she just transitioned out. Um, that was my sister, so she now, uh, yeah, finished last week. And the three others of us, we've stayed on. We've signed a one year contract, and then we'll see how we feel at the end of that year. And so the earn out is a potential to to earn incremental over on top the, the acquisition price. Is that right? Right. That's right. And yeah, we did not do that. It was a one-time deal. Got it. Got it. And and how's it looking so far four months into the earn out? Um, look, this is things are things are going well. I I'm really uh it, it's a it's a change, of course. Um, I probably feel in some ways a little more accountable, but I don't mind that. I don't mind that one bit. Um, the feeling, the vibe is the same. Our Mabel spirit is alive and well. Um, so I, I, we're transitioning, we're transitioning very well. And I actually love that now we have the expertise of this, you know, this, this giant, like this, the people that we're reporting to are so interested in, and so communicative and, and really, uh, really interested in Mabel's and, and growing her even more. So I love it. So you get this big check, you, Julie, Cynthia, Tricia. What did you guys do? I mean, did you have a party? Did you did you buy a trophy? Did you what was the did you did you indulge in anything when you uh, when the when the money hit the bank account? Buddy, I've got six kids in hockey. <laughs> I paid for registration. <laughs> Look, um, I think you know what I think we all. This would probably be another piece of advice I'd give people, your folks out there listening, is that. You're probably wise to set up some, if you think you're going to sell a few years out, just to set up, you know, a few things like, you know, we, we had very wisely set up holding companies and, and trusts and things like that. So that means, you know, you can um, invest your money a little bit better and that sort of thing. So I would say if somebody's thinking of selling next year to, to really think about your, your, like be prepared personally as well, not only just your business, but prepare yourself personally, talk to your accountant about things you can do so that you can, you know, use your money more effectively. Julie, where do people get in touch with you? Okay. So I'm everywhere, really. I mean, I blog a lot. I'm at Julie Cole on Twitter, Cole.Julie on Instagram, Julie.Cole at MabelsLabels.com. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm out there and happy to talk to anyone. I love this stuff. Julie Cole, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.